You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Are we entering a brave new world of healthcare? And if so, what looms ahead for physicians and their patients? In his book, The Brave New World of Healthcare, former Colorado Governor Richard D. Lamb discusses the good, the bad, and the future of the current U.S. healthcare system, the brilliance of our doctors, the quality of our delivery systems, and the promise of our technological advancements versus the disparity in treatment between the rich and the poor, the lack of cost containment and other control mechanisms, and our ability to sustain our healthcare future. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President, Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And my guest is Governor Richard D. Lamb, Center for Public Policy and Contemporary Issues at the University of Denver, and author of The Brave New World of Healthcare and Condition Critical, A New Moral Vision for Healthcare. Governor Lamb and I are discussing issues surrounding the changes and transformation in the U.S. healthcare system. Governor Lamb, welcome to ReachMD. It's my great pleasure. So my first question is, what's the difference between healthcare today and healthcare from 25 years ago? Well, the structure is certainly largely the same. The private doctors and um, non-governmental hospitals being the backbone of the system, but I believe that the two biggest changes, and they're related, is one, it's a lot more expensive, and number two, um, the explosion of things that we can do to the human body as it ages. So I, I think technology is sort of the dominant uh, change that we see over the last 25 years. And how has technology changed the way we deliver health care today? Well, that's a great question because there's, a, you know, there's um, an argument anyway that it's become less humanistic, that doctors really manipulate the technology more and, uh, and lose some of the, the human qualities. But I actually tend to disagree with that. I think doctors use technology as a tool and put it in perspective. But the real change in technology is what the public has come to expect. So technology creates its own demand, and we now live in a world, and in a country anyway, not a world, but in a country, where when you invent something or an article of a new drug appears in uh, JAMA or the New England Journal on Monday morning by Tuesday noon, people think of it as an entitlement, that they're somehow entitled to it. So technology certainly has created a large expectation in the American public. And technology seems like it would be a great thing, but it brings with some uh, very devastating consequences in healthcare, doesn't it? Well, I believe it's 88% of health economists point to technology as the largely the driver of healthcare costs. So when you look over the last 25 years, I believe it was 11% of our GDP 25 years ago. Now it's 16% and uh, heading toward 19%. So technology has saved a lot of people. It certainly made a, a great contribution to healthcare. And I think that the dilemma is that health technology, unlike a lot of other technology, seems to be additive rather than substitute for other things that we do. So it seems to drive up the costs. And if we don't do something about it, what's likely to happen in the future? Well, first of all, I don't think it is sustainable because nothing that grows, healthcare's costs have been growing at two and a half times the rate of inflation for my professional lifetime. And so nothing can grow at two and a half times the rate of inflation. All geometric curves must end. Um, so I don't think that it is sustainable, but I think what happens is medical technology has the potential to um, sort of bankrupt our children and our grandchildren, and it also tends to crowd out 
other things that we also need to do in a society. So there's a real conflict, I believe, between raising the ceiling of the things that we can do in healthcare and expanding the floor of people making it available to um, everybody in the United States. So technology is both a, as, as one of the um, health ethicists said, it's a wonderful um, servant, but a, sort of an intolerable master. So help the physicians that are listening to this broadcast understand when you're talking about the floor, what is it you're really speaking about? I'm talking about the 44.4 million people that are, are not otherwise covered by health insurance. So the floor, if we spend, um, what medical technology has been doing is doing more and more things for fewer and fewer people at higher and higher cost with higher and higher technology. And that has the net effect of sort of, from a public policy standpoint, we can either spend the money on more intensive treatments to the existing insured population, or we can expand the floor and treat more of those 44.4 million people that don't have access to health insurance. So if it's not a matter of access, it's also um, a matter of uh, some people just not wanting to get health care insurance. But the numbers are very clear, I believe, that a certain portion of those 44.4 million people can't afford good health insurance for themselves and their family. And at that level, what we have is a a, a sort of a big public policy trade-off where we're doing more and more things to people, but we're not covering all Americans that need help in meeting their basic health insurance needs. So I think what I hear you saying is the spending that we do on technology creates a vacuum of dollars to support the floor, these patients that are uninsured or underinsured. Yes, and I can understand how some of your listeners will be skeptical of that because the history of technology generally in the United States is to produce things at less and less cost. And so we spend less of our work weeks buying a refrigerator, washers and dryers, automobiles, almost everything else that we do uh, and, and purchase as consumers, except health care. And health care in the last uh, 40 years has gone from what we used to do is we used to be able to, the average hourly worker would work until mid-January to pay their health care costs. Now it is estimated uh, that they work until mid-March to pay their health care costs. It's gone from 78 hours of average uh, wage in America to 390 hours of average wage in America. Uh, and technology is the main driver, as the health economists find. So we find ourselves in this anomalous position where in healthcare, technology doesn't seem to save us money, but it adds to the things we can do to add to our health, but it's expensive. So it looks like we've invented more in healthcare than we can afford to deliver to everyone. What happens from here? Well, welcome to the new world of rationing. And I argue that it is not a new world of rationing, that we've actually been rationing by excluding people from the system. But I think what we're entering in is a world where, um, as sort of philosopher Javi Morheim said, that we're not only going to have to ask the medical appropriateness of everything that we do in healthcare, but also sort of the cost-benefit ratio. And that's a whole new world where we have to consider cost as part of the equation, and it's not going to come very naturally to an awful lot of physicians. So who determines right now how we spend our health care dollars? Well, the government is the first one. 
because 58% of health care is paid for by government, either federal or state government, under Medicare, Medicaid, and a variety of other programs. The employers then uh, next come up, and they pay a great deal, maybe 30% of health care, and only 17% of health care in America is paid for uh, out of pocket by individuals. So whether we like it or not, um, I argue we've sort of half-socialized medicine in America because uh, I estimate that 58 cents out of every dollar spent in health care is paid for by government. Who advises the government, though, on what they should be paying and uh, how they should be rationing those 58 cents out of every dollar? Well, that's a great question because um, nobody advises them. We've built the system assuming we could do everything for everybody that medical science has, ex- has invented. So in Medicare, if there are limits, it would be, be because some uh, technology has experimental hasn't been approved. But um, theoretically, in Medicare, once you get to age 65 and on Medicare, it covers um, all of your medical needs. Um, that's a problem because the increasing sort of the marginal uh, medicine, it's, there's a diminishing return on so much of, of health care where, you know, you could take an MRI of your body every um, six months and assumedly that would find some things wrong with a certain percentage of the people. But um, you, you have to start making some judgments about what makes sense in healthcare, what is affordable, and so it's it's we're going to have to go from the world of um, sort of um, can do driving everything. Just the availability of something will be its indicator of its use to some sort of cost benefit ratio, um, and I believe that's that's necessary unless we're going to bankrupt our children. I argue that our aging bodies can essentially prevent our grandkids from uh, having any kind of adequate education system, infrastructure, quality of life, uh, and lots of other things. So in the brave new world of healthcare, who makes these rationing decisions? Well, I think that the best model, and the model that other countries have looked at who have been more honest about this system, is to set up some sort of um, system which is transparent and which should be a largely with, with influence from the healthcare system, but broader than that, where you set priorities that you can do in healthcare, that you, um, you can't do everything, but you can do a lot, and um, you have to then have somebody, either through a system of medical technology assessment or uh, priority setting, uh, decide what we can afford and what we can't afford. So it well may be, for instance, that we say we can't afford an implantable artificial heart. That would be an example of healthcare rationing that other countries have And when you say we can't afford it, you mean the government or whoever the payer is doesn't pay for that? What about if somebody has excess dollars they want to use to pay for that for themselves? That's probably a subject of a whole separate program, actually, um, the two-level of health care delivery system. But I argue that there's always, in every country I've ever visited in health care, there is a two-level of health care delivery system. You can't tell people how to spend their money. So my argument would be um, people will be able to afford out of their own pocket whatever they can afford. But collectively, when we pool money through insurance or government, then we're going to have to set some limits. So which country's health care system would you advocate us looking at as a model for our own? Well, that's a, I advocate institutions instead of systems. I think the method of technology assessment they have in Europe, where they have a consortium of technology assessment that decides, for instance, when a new drug is really effective and cost-beneficial. You also have these priority systems, 
and actually, like Oregon, I think your audience would must best know the Oregon Health Priority System, which uh, they've taken everything you can do in healthcare and they've reduced it to over 700 condition treatment uh, pairs. And then the legislature goes through, hypothetically anyway, and decides what they can afford and what they can't afford. That's where you had all of a sudden the terrible story of the little boy, Kobe Howard, and the lack of getting him a transplant. As physicians, we use every tool and piece of knowledge to keep our patients alive. As a nation, we use technology to continuously provide more tools and knowledge. As a keeper of the public trust, we need to understand the health and monetary implications of this system. I want to thank our guest, Governor Richard Lamb, for helping us to understand these issues and for keeping the dialogue focused on what needs to be changed. I am attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.